I want to ask if you'll join with me in turning to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, and our text this morning is going to be verses 1 through 5. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and as we're turning there, I just want to say good morning and greet those who have joined us on our Facebook live stream. Thank you for being with us. We hope that this will be a, an encouragement to you and a blessing to you. Again, Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, this is the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the reading of God's holy word this morning. May he write his truths on our hearts. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we recognize that you have set aside this time on this Lord's day that your people would gather and listen to you. And so we pray that you would speak, O oh Lord. We pray that you would speak into our hearts as only you can. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have spoken to us, and that you have revealed the truth to us. We pray that the Spirit would come and lead us and guide us into that truth now, and change us forever for your glory. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. If you are like me, you uh, have been shocked at something that we've seen, I think maybe for the first time in the history of our country, I, I know for the first time in my lifetime, if you've turned on your TV and watched the news on uh, basically any channel, you've seen this, and I'm not referring to uh, the pandemic, the COVID-19 virus, uh, as terrible as it is, we've had pandemics before. Uh, they don't come along very often, uh, so we haven't maybe seen one recently, but we have seen them, and, and they sometimes are, are very deadly. Sometimes they kill millions. Uh, neither am I referring to the uh, looting and burning that is taking place in many of our cities. We've seen that before. Uh, we've seen situations in the past where uh, something touched off a, a, a riot that turned into uh, destruction with fires and, and theft. Uh, we've seen it. And so that's not what is so shocking to me. What is really shocking to me is the ignoring by law enforcement of a lot of it. 
Now listen, I'm not necessarily blaming them. Law enforcement has to have the backing of, of mayors and governors and district attorneys, and in many of these situations they don't, and so I recognize their hands are tied. But uh, I was reading the other night on uh, Twitter, there was a thread that someone had posted, and there were about 25 names and mugshots that were posted on Twitter. And this particular person went on to explain that these people had been arrested and released immediately with no bail. And so what is shocking to me is the coddling to lawlessness. It's as if we've just turned our, our, our backs to it and said, well, well, whatever. And I have to ask, can America last like this? In this context, in this situation, will America make it? And I don't know. And I have to tell you that that is not primarily my main concern. My concern is the Lord's church. Now, please understand me. I, I'm not trying to make a case for a, uh, a politician, a political party, a policy. I'm not going to uh, risk abusing my position as pastor to try to, to convince someone to vote a certain way. I think, though, that sometimes things are so blatantly obvious that there is no convincing needed. But with that being said, I don't ever recall seeing such disregard for the law. But Scripture tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. In fact, if you just start reading the Bible in Genesis, what stands out and, and jumps out at us is this blatant disregard for, for God's law, isn't it? We see it in Genesis 3. We barely get into the story and someone has disobeyed God. And then we see it in Genesis 4. Murder. And by the time we get to Genesis 6, this seems to have affected every human on the planet except Noah and his family. And what does God do? He brings judgment. Throughout history, though, throughout the story of the Bible, and even today, God has always kept for himself a remnant. Always. He's promised that he would always have a remnant. And so I want to ask you today, are you a part of that remnant? You might say, well, I, I don't know. I think I am. Well, here's how you can tell. What do you believe about God's Word? Do you believe it's true? Have you made a commitment to honor God's Word, to obey God's Word, to, to trust that what God has said is best, and therefore He deserves our complete obedience? Is that where you stand? Well, I pray that you have, and I Trust that the Lord will speak into our hearts today as we look to His Word. We 
uh, began our, our study last week of the book of Ruth. Uh, today we're going to start the exegetical part of the study, and I love using that word because it makes me sound smart, right? Come on, you know it does. Exegetical, what does that mean? Well, we're going to go through this book verse by verse and look at the actual text, at the words of the text. The prefix in that word exegetical means out of or from. And so uh, when we read and study God's Word, we don't take our thoughts and ideas and put them into it. We take from what God has said, right? You might say we, we glean from God's Word. That's a good word to use regarding the book of Ruth, isn't it? As we're going through uh, the book of Ruth, we're going to see several theological developments and the one that I want us to focus on today is God's law. Now, when I say that, I don't mean in contrast to grace, uh, or I don't mean uh, a specific period in history where God's people were under the law and now we're under the new covenants since the coming of Christ. What I mean is, what is the place of God's law in our hearts? Uh, do we have regard for God's law, what God has said? Do we appreciate God's law? Or do we have this willy-nilly view about God's law? Oh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's okay, but I'm a grace guy. We have to be careful with how we uh, approach this because if we're not careful, we will set aside a lot of Scripture. And what we have to recognize is that God's law has a, a, a place in the church today. Are we saved by the law? Well, we know this, don't we? I mean, that's a no-brainer. We're not saved through observing the law. And yet we recognize that that when God has spoken to us, we, we need to be listening and we need to recognize. We need to obey. Let me ask you this. Uh, when you hear the word law, what comes to mind? What, what comes into your mind when you hear that word? Do you think uh, rules, regulations, cruelty, punishment? The main word in our Bibles that's translated law uh, is the Hebrew word Torah, which means instruction. So let me ask you this. Do any of us have a problem with instruction? And the answer is yes, we do. <laughs> because we don't see God's word, God's law, given to us as instruction. And let me tell you how I know. I see Christians all the time making dumb decisions, behaving in ways that is inexplicable, doing things, saying things, struggling with how to make choices when God has clearly spoken and given us His instruction. And I look at that and I say, why? And sometimes this is me. This comes from what we were reading about in that text in Ezekiel, a, a, a being... Hard-headed, <laughs> hard foreheads. <laughs> Last week, we did uh, kind of an overview of the book of Ruth, and uh, 
Today, the real journey begins, and what I want us to see is what can happen when we take a lackadaisical, casual, half-hearted, uh, or even indifferent view to God's law. And understand this, brothers and sisters, when I say God's law, really all I'm saying is God's word. The people uh, that were living during this time had God's word. What was it? It was the first five books of the Bible, God's law. So, what happens when someone disregards God's word? Well, we're going to see that today. And again, I ask you, and I challenge you, what is your stance regarding God's word? What is your position? Do we have the position that David had? Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Or are we just kind of, well, you know, take it or leave it. I'm a grace guy. <laughs> That's a rather long introduction, but we can jump into the book of Ruth now. Uh, there's no doubt in any of our minds that this is a beautiful story, right? Maybe one of the most beautiful stories in all of Scripture. The way that this book is set up reminds me of a play. We've got four chapters in Ruth, and it's like those four chapters are four acts. And each one of the acts has two or three scenes in each act. And so today we're going to start with Act 1, Scene 1. And I don't really have much for you today in the way of an outline, but what we're going to do is just kind of get things started here. And, and just investigate and answer three questions, when, where, and who. When, where, and who. Uh, when does the story take place? Where does it take place? Now, the when and the where is what we call setting, right? And setting uh, often sets the tone or the mood, and we're going to see that it's just really not that great here at the beginning of this story in Ruth. And then we're going to look at the characters, that is, the who. But first, the when. Now we're going to begin at the most logical place, the end of the book of Ruth. Some of you will remember this from last week. But I want to begin today by reading the genealogy found at the end of the book, and you'll see why I am here in just a minute. But I want to read it again. It's in Ruth 4, beginning in verse 18. It says, Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And then the end. An unusual way to end a story, isn't it? with a genealogy. These things usually come at the beginning of books in the Bible. Have you noticed that? So we have to begin with this question. Why does Ruth close with a genealogy and why does she close with the genealogy of David? Very interesting, isn't it? Well, I think that the answer to this comes in our text. So now we go back to Ruth 1, verse 1, which says, In the days when the judges ruled, and let's pause right there. 
In the days when the judges ruled, it's very important that we recognize the movement in the book of Ruth. It's going from this time period when the judges ruled up to the time of King David. Now this is very significant. Why? Well, these two time periods, that the beginning and end, the, the bookshelves, if you will, are very different times, aren't they? What's happening in Judges? Well, if you remember, uh, last week I mentioned how uh, at the beginning of that book, it's, it talks about in chapter 1, something that stood out was that it goes on and lists almost every tribe that they did not drive out the nations completely. And as a result of that, what happened? Well, you've got pagan nations who worship idols and you've got God's people who worship God. They start hanging around together. And we have idolatry and unfaithfulness and disobedience. People taking up the gods and the religion of the nations that were there, that were not supposed to be there. And now we have to understand that not only in Judges do we have the worship of false gods, but we also have a blatant disregard for God's law. And we know this because the writer of the book of Judges uh, mentions several times, especially toward the end, that there was no king in Israel. You see where we're going from in Ruth? We're going from a time when there is no king to the great king, King David. What stands out about this, this line that is mentioned several times in Judges, in fact, the book of Judges ends. This is the final verse in Judges, Judges 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. Everyone just decided themselves what was right. <laughs> now, as I mentioned, in Judges, we have some, some stories of some great victories. We have the stories of Gideon and, and Deborah and, and Barak and Samson and others. But mostly, Judges is indicative of a, a lawless time. Idolatry. Unfaithfulness. That's what this period of the judges is all about. Blatant disregard for God and His Word. That's the setting here as we begin the book of Ruth. There's, there's no king. And this is why the writer moves us in this story to the culmination of the genealogy of King David. This is a story of hope, isn't it? We begin with no king and we move to a, a great king we move from a time when people disregarded God's word. Let me ask you this. Was it because they didn't know? Was it because God had not spoken? God had spoken, right? <laughs> he had spoken through Moses and through Joshua. And so they have these five books of the law recorded by Moses. And so we... We see here why the writer of, of this book of Ruth points out that this takes place 
in the time when the judges ruled and, and why there is so much hope in the coming king, King David, don't we? I hope you do. Maybe you don't. Well, the answer is actually found in the law. There's a section that I want to read to you from Deuteronomy where Moses records something that God spoke to him about. And let me read this to you from Deuteronomy 17. It's kind of a long section. So I'm going to flip back to Deuteronomy 17. This is verses 14 through 20. Uh, this, this actually pertains to our story. Listen closely. This is Moses speaking to the people. And remember, Deuteronomy is given to them when they are uh, about to enter the land. They haven't entered yet. And so really this is God instructing them about the future. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you among whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. A totally different story, but we recognize that there was a very prominent king that did those exact things, right? Remember King Solomon? Anyway, back to our text here in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. And when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, listen, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. I think that that may be a hint of why the writer of the book of Judges, or, or Ruth, has put so much hope in this coming king. It was to be the king's duty to make for himself a copy of the law approved by the priests and have that book always at his side, always to be looking at it, reading it, studying it so that he would know God's word and be able to lead and govern the people accordingly. The Lord predicts through Moses that the people will one day demand a king so that they can be like the surrounding nations. We've been doing a study on Wednesday night of 1 Samuel and we've kind of unpacked some of this in that book. So that they could be like the surrounding nations. And what we see here in this passage in Deuteronomy is that the Lord predicts that and He approves it and He says, okay, here are the stipulations one of the primary responsibilities of this king is to have a copy of the law right there at his side, to always be reading, studying the law. So as we begin the book of Ruth, we, we see that there is no king in Israel. Everyone determines for themselves what is right. 
Sounds like America right now, doesn't it? <laughs> hmm. Well, as I said, I, I don't know if America can make it. I, I don't know that it will survive. Again, not my chief concern, but, but I do have to wonder about us. Do we acknowledge Jesus as our king? And do we do that only because we need someone to fight our battles for us? Or do we recognize Jesus as the king who has taken in himself the law and fulfilled it completely, obeyed it completely, and given that righteousness to us so that we could stand before God united in Christ. He's our Savior. And He is our great captain, and He does fight our battles. But I think we have to ask ourselves, if we acknowledge Jesus as our King, and I hope we all do, why do we? Do we recognize the King who, who leads us in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake? One of the things that we're going to see in this book of Ruth is that it is a stark contrast to the book of Judges. The people who are involved in this story have a high regard for God's law. And it is beautifully demonstrated. We'll see this as we go through. So, so that's the win. In the times of the judges, lawlessness. But let's consider the second aspect of setting, which is where. Where does the story take place? Well, the opening scene in the book of Ruth uh, tells us that it's the land of Moab. We are, are told of a family. It says in verse 1, There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Uh, this uh, particular man was from a region called Judah. That is, that's the, the land that had been allotted to that tribe. And specifically, he's from a, a small town about five miles south of Jerusalem called Bethlehem. Now, that town is familiar to us, right? We know all about Bethlehem. We know the significance of Bethlehem. This family went to sojourn in the country of Moab, presumably because of a famine. Now, what we see about this famine is that it was not limited to the area of Bethlehem, or Judah, or even Israel, right? It, it, it covers that entire area, but not Moab. Very interesting, which we'll see here in just a minute is not that far away. This famine affects all of Israel to the extent that the family couldn't just go a few miles one way or the other or go to another part of the promised land they had to leave the promised land. Uh, to see this, I've, I've included a map this week uh, to give us kind of a visual aid. So uh, if you'll look on that map, uh, what you'll see there is that this family uh, goes to sojourn in Moab. And what exactly happens here is they're actually retracing steps that they've already, or, or at least their ancestors have already taken. If you remember, when Israel came up out of Egypt, they wandered in the desert in the Sinai Peninsula, and then they came up on the east side of the Jordan through the land of Moab. All right, so if you see the red line with the arrow pointing down, 
Imagine that arrow pointing the other way. That's how they went into the land. They went up to the edge of the Jordan, and then they crossed over. So this family that is going back to Moab, what's wrong here? They're going the wrong way, aren't they? <laughs> They're going the wrong way. They're reversing what has taken place before. What, what about the famine? Well, as I mentioned last week, a famine in ancient times was a death knell. Depending on how long it lasted, it often meant hunger. Maybe it even meant starvation. And so what's happening here, I, I think, is not just a bad weather pattern, but it is the withholding of rain by the Lord from his people for their unfaithfulness during this period of the judges when everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Both in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28, the law, God had spoken and promised the blessing of rain if they would be faithful to his word and obedient and trust him and put their faith in him. He would send the rain and you would have crops and you would have harvests. But, he said, if you don't, I'm going to withhold the rain. The land's going to dry up. You'll have drought and you'll have famine. And so this is what's happened. If you look again at the map, what's interesting is that as the crow flies from Bethlehem to, let's say, the center of Moab is probably only about 50 miles or less. Have you ever heard of a place that's having a famine, but 50 miles away they're not? I think this pretty much tells us that this is judgment. You can go as little as 50 miles away to get food, but you can't where you live. Why? Because God has said, no rain. No rain. Now, we don't really know exactly why, other than the fact that maybe they're hungry, but I can't help but wonder if there's more going on as to the reasons why this family has left Bethlehem. I think the text indicates that there's a spiritual famine going on as well. Maybe they've given up on the Lord. Maybe this is a, a case of, of backsliding, of just disavowing God and His Word. Or maybe they're just hungry and they don't know what else to do. But I think the text suggests that there's more to it, and we'll see why here in just a moment. But that does lead me to ask, where are you today? And I don't mean physically, like where do you live, Bartlett or Collierville or Millington or wherever. I don't mean that. But are you where you are supposed to be? Spiritually. There's so much irony here. Uh, you've probably been in studies where you've looked at this name Bethlehem before. What does Bethlehem mean? House of bread. Do you see what's going on here? God's people living in the promised land have left the promised land. They've left the house of bread because they're hungry. Maybe you are in a dry place 
spiritually. And you might even tell me, Brother Randy, I'm, I'm reading, I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible, but, but nothing is happening. Let me tell you, don't stop. Don't quit. As somebody who's been there, but, but not just based on my experience, based on God's Word. Don't stop reading. Don't stop praying. Don't, don't stop crying out. If you're in that spiritually dry place, God will come to you. I can assure you, I can testify to His goodness of coming and meeting me in dry places in my life. God has promised the bread of life to us through our Lord Jesus. That takes care of the setting, the, the when and the where, and that brings us to the, the last point this morning, the who. who. Who are these people? Well, let's look again at our text. Verse 2 says that the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Melon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. The leader of the family is a man named uh, Elimelech, the, the husband and the father. Uh, uh, interesting. His name means, ready? My God is king. There was no king in Israel. And this man, name, his name means my God is king. Uh, I can't help but wonder if he believes in his name. You see, uh, really the truth is, is that there was a king. People just didn't acknowledge him. They had a king. Just didn't like him. <laughs> Elimelech does not occupy a major role in the story. In fact, he's only here briefly, just for a moment. Uh, one of the main characters is his wife, Naomi. Uh, there's a little bit of debate about the meaning of her name. One scholar suggests that it comes from a, a Hebrew word meaning pleasant. I think there is credence given to that as we see later on in the story when she tries to change her name. Remember that? Now, uh, the two sons, uh, their names uh, are, are, well, there's less debate. Uh, they have what we would call rather ominous names. What does that mean? Well, their names uh, signal uh, the fate that will happen to them later. And their names are associated with uh, sickly and death. Great names, aren't they? <laughs> Why did Elimelech move? Well, I, I asked that earlier. And I can't help but wonder if there's something spiritual going on because I wonder, did he ever, did he have any intention of coming back? It says in the text that he sojourned, which means that he's only going there temporarily. But I wonder if he, after he got there, if he decided, you know what, now why would I say that? Well, uh, I, I think this may have been a permanent move. Notice what happens to the family. Elimelech dies, we're told, in verse 3. Again, is this just, was he sick? <laughs> what happened? Is this God's judgment? These two sons take 
Moabite wives. Isn't that interesting? I think that suggests that maybe Naomi has, has talked with the two sons and said, Well, hey, you know, we're here. Get married. Settle down. Start families. If they had planned to go back, why would they take Moabite wives? Especially, and we'll look, uh, look into this, God willing, next week, uh, when we look at the relationship between Israel and Moab, w w they never would have done that. <laughs> Especially uh, to take them back. <laughs> it says here that uh, Elimelech dies in verse 3 then the two sons take Moabite wives I think that suggests they have no interest in going back and then further after learning the names of the Moabite wives in verse 4 Orpah and Ruth we find that they stayed another 10 years 10 years I don't think they have any inclination in going back to the promised land hmm well, as it turns out, the fate of the father becomes the fate of the two sons. And so we have a wife and a mother, Naomi, who is now a widow and bereaved of her two sons. And the irony uh, just jumps off the page, doesn't it? A man and his family leave the house of bread because there is no bread. In Israel there is sin and idolatry and judgment. And there's willful neglect of God and His Word. They had to know, didn't they, that God promised blessing for obedience. All they had to do was repent. They had to know that a curse was promised by God if there was unfaithfulness and idolatry and disobedience. And yet, this man and his family leave a place of spiritual and physical famine in search of bread in a pagan nation. And what do they find? Death. <laughs> death. Of the four people who traveled to escape hunger and death, three of them die. And the only one that's left is Naomi. Now, I can't help but wonder, why is that? Why was Naomi spared? You read further on in the story and you think, Lord, you, you took the wrong person. She's horrible. <laughs> She's just a mean, bitter lady. <laughs> I think there, there may be a clue in the text because it has a very, very interesting wording that we, we might miss if we're not careful. Notice it says in verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. You see that? She was left with her two sons. Uh, and then in verse 5, it says both Melon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, in both cases, that verb that is translated was left is in many other places translated was a remnant. I mentioned to you earlier that God always has a remnant. Where do I get that idea? This is where it comes from. Why didn't Naomi die? God always has a remnant. In the midst of all the, the hunger and death, the Lord 
preserves for him a remnant. And what we're going to find out as we get further along into the story is that this remnant comes to have a high regard for God's law. A great love for God's word. A remnant that culminates in the birth of a king. Now, we might look at this book of Ruth and say, King David? Yes. In the immediate context of this story, yes. But as we saw in Matthew's gospel last week, Matthew begins with a genealogy and he has this genealogy from the end of Ruth as part of his story. And what he shows us is what? This genealogy is pointing to someone greater than David. There's another great king. Because we know about King David, and as great as he was, he was a man of many failures, wasn't he? He was a man who, who knew God's word, and he wrote about how he loved God's word, and yet he disobeyed. God's word. And so there must be another king, right? And the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is this, this king has come. This king is our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Matthew announces to us at the beginning of his book. The king has come. The king who refers to himself as the bread of life. And so I want to ask you, do you know this king? Is this your king? This is not simply a king who will fight your battles. He, he does that, but this is a king who gives you life. He gives you himself. This is the king of which we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, he tells us. What does that mean? That means that we completely trust in everything that he's done. We recognize this king as our Savior and our Lord. King who gives us his very self, the bread of life that satisfies every hunger that we could ever have. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that our Lord Jesus has come and has given himself to us. He is the living water. He is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. And so today, we take and eat, and we're reminded of this through the symbols of the Lord's Supper. And as we prepare our hearts to take it, Father, we pray that you would work mightily and greatly in your people today. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.